You know what I hate about seminary? I'm just going to tell you straight up. I hated it when I was a student. I hate it now as a professor. How many of you are first, this is your first semester in seminary? Oh, lots of you. A lot of you feel like it's your first. That the message is, you've been doing this all wrong. Right? You go to Bible study, oh gosh, I've been studying the Bible all wrong. I've been praying all wrong. Oh no, my preaching is all wrong. I've even been taking communion wrong. What's so hard about communion, you know? You know, been doing that all wrong. And, and all of us, you know, we're, we're doing this. You know, my professor at Yale used to say that at seminary, we sort of give you the disease so that then we can treat you for it. And, and so, you know, th this is going to be another one of those. Um, okay? So just telling you. <laughs> um, verse 8 is the money verse in the passage that was read for, uh, in our scripture reading. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with the Lord our God? And there's a standard way that we tie that knot. A, a typical way that we all understand this verse, we say this verse, first of all, mentions what you might could call a kind of a harsh side of things, do justice. Uh, and then sort of a tender side of things, love mercy. And underneath it all, the spiritual side of things, walk humbly with the Lord your God. And especially the first two items, do justice, love mercy, we tend to pitch as a kind of dialectic or kind of a contrast that, uh, you know, we want to have the, the justice part of this, you know, the hard driving, stand up against the wrong, uh, confront power, all that. And then the love mercy is the tender part and we want to somehow have those conflicting things in a balance in our lives and that that will be impossible unless we walk humbly with the Lord our God and have devotions and, and all that. And so um, we also typically associate these things with especially justice and mercy with dramatic, heroic acts of service and sacrifice many times in uh, rather exotic places involving some of the most difficult problems faced anywhere by the human race. And in that context, uh, we often then begin to talk about radical sacrifice and service uh, and even describing our faith in very extreme uh, emotional terms. And it's an easy thing in a chapel message, uh, especially if we have some time of special emphasis, you know, in missions or kingdom service or something, that we want to kind of amp it up a little bit and we want to raise the pressure on the audience, you know, and you're not doing enough. You're doing it wrong. God needs more, 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 more. And but that's just sort of endemic to our culture, right, as preachers. That's just, we, we want to tighten the screws as much as we can. Um, all of which raises the question posed by the prophet. What does the Lord seek from you? And that verb we translate require really is, is to seek or to hunt for something. What is the Lord hunting for from you? Now, surely, God is not terribly happy with the people in our passage. It is a lawsuit. And the Hebrew word reeve, which refers to a controversy, an argument, and even a lawsuit, occurs three or four times just in the opening few verses. And so, yeah, God here is suing his people. But don't for a moment think of a formal courtroom. Think of the ancient world, the city gate, a public place where people pass by and stop and stare and listen, do business, shop, trade stories, even gossip. God comes to this place and announces that he's got a problem with his people. 
The city elders and the wisest folks in town and then the curious and the onlookers all gather around to hear the story and watch the fireworks and see what happens. Now the goal of an ancient lawsuit, unlike our legal system, was not to exact punishment, send somebody to jail, levy a fine, or so forth. It was actually more like what today we would call an intervention to force a confrontation when somebody just won't face a major lapse in their conduct. And so the aim is not primarily to punish. The aim is to solve the problem. The aim is to resolve the conflict, restore the relationships, and get on back with our lives. And so this lawsuit doesn't really tell us primarily about how mad God is and how close he is to wiping them out, although that is one possible outcome. Uh, It's mainly telling us how deeply God cares about this relationship and wants to resolve this breach between himself and his people. He wants the relationship whole and vibrant again. It feels like it's at a crisis and so an intervention. And like the city gate scene, the parties to the controversy argue back and forth. So in verses 3 to 5, God lays out his position. Then in verses 6 and 7, the people reply, challenging what God has said. And then in verse 8, the prophet, who's kind of like the lawyer for God, uh, he presents God's response. And God's side of the argument actually comes as kind of a surprise if you're an advocate of extreme religiosity, you know, idolizing the idea that God relentlessly pressures us with this never-ending complaint. It's not enough. God's first statement is that he says, you know, I really don't want to wear you guys out. Um, I really don't want to weary my people. Yahweh reminds them that first and foremost, he's their liberator. He says, wait a minute. How have I wearied you and made you tired? I brought you out of Egypt. I liberated you from bondage. And so whatever Yahweh is, whatever he might require, he wants them to understand he is not Pharaoh. And this is not about making bricks. If it were, the whole Exodus story would have to be rewritten. God would have to come down to Egypt like in Exodus 2 and and give them the Ten Commandments. Oh, heck, give them the whole covenant code and say, all right, you people, get busy with this, work on it. I'll check back in in 40 years. We'll see how it's going. And if things look good, we'll talk about getting you out of here. So I have another world I want to work on. See you guys in 40 years. That's how that would have gone down. But that isn't how it happened. He just saved them acting unilaterally in pure grace, keeping his ancient promises. And then, only then, after this stupendous revelation of his power and goodness, did God present what he expected from his people. And so the law in the Old Testament isn't the condition for salvation. The law in the Old Testament is the fruit of salvation. It is the sign of salvation. And notice in Yahweh's review of the story, he doesn't even include giving the law. Just kind of skips over that part. Uh, And he then also refers, he includes Miriam, which is really interesting because her main contribution to the story is a song. In Exodus 15, the song of Moses, if you read through that song, at the end you find out Miriam is as much responsible for the song as Moses is. And so, and then there's the Balaam story, which isn't exactly complimentary to Israel either, uh, but it demonstrates God's astounding grace and protection of his people, and it's being channeled through the voice of a pagan shaman. 
And so God is saying, look, I've been generous with you. I've liberated you. I led you. I protected you. I provided for you. Why have you turned against me? Why have you turned your back? Why has your love grown, grown cold? Why do you treat each other like you were still slaves? Why do you abuse power? Why do you crush the poor? Why do you ignore righteousness? Why do you cynically mock everything that's good? Why do you do these things considering all that has been done for you? Well, the people have an answer. And believe it or not, they don't stop and say, Oh God, you're so right. How could we have ever forgotten that? No, no. Uh, they ask a series of questions that really aren't expecting an answer, okay? They're not, it's not like, like when my children were growing up, you know, you tell them to do something, they would say, why? And I think my son Zachary was about four. And I looked at him and I said, here's the deal. If I were to answer this question and give you all the reasons why I want you to do this, would you stop and say, Father, I acknowledge and understand now that you truly love me and you have my long-term interests at heart. And because of this, sometimes you must request of me that I do some things that might not be what I prefer, but which I now understand are for my good. And so, thank you so much. Having been given the reason as a rational, sentient being, I comply. <laughs> no. It wouldn't matter what. So that's why parents say, because I said so. Right? That's, that's where that comes from. So now you know. You see? Second way this chapel's been practical. The question doesn't expect any answers. And you see, that's the problem with always upping the ante. God wants more, 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 more. Eventually, under that theology, somebody will conclude that if it's never good enough, why try? And so in presenting this objection, of course, um, uh, we, we get these questions. Well, how shall I approach Yahweh? Come to God. Well, what do I need to do? Shall I grovel before God most high? And notice how in their cynicism, they express what they probably think is a very high view of God. God most high. So what am I supposed to do? Grovel? Shall I draw near to him with whole burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Now, this is rich. The whole burnt offering is the most costly and demanding sacrifice in the whole Levitical system. You sacrificed your best male breeding animal, the one you predicated the future of your entire flock or herd on, and you just incinerated the principle of your retirement account when you offer that animal as a whole burnt offering. In reality, maybe only once in your life would you ever make an offering like that. The most common offering was actually the easiest. It was the peace offering. You uh, give a piece of the thing to the priest to burn on the altar, and then you and your friends sit down and eat the rest of the animal, you know, and have a party. And God presides over the party. Uh, that's the most common, but oh no, the guy says, so does he want whole burnt offerings, yearling calves? And of course, the point here is he's saying, God wants too much. God asks too much. And of course, the important thing then is that God doesn't stand there and demand of them every single time the ultimate sacrifice, the bankrupting of their lives. Full devotion? Sure. But that doesn't mean that God is some kind of tyrant who demands that we sacrifice everything we love most because he has some kind of sick need for us to prove it. When we begin to see devotion to God as a burden, something irksome, when we see it as a sacrifice, Something's already gone wrong with our relationship a long time ago. Will Yahweh be pleased with thousands of rams? 
10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The question really here is just saying, God can't be pleased. And in presenting this objection, one that of course Micah and God know is untrue, the message that Micah wants to give is that God's requirement is not something obscure or extreme or impossible. It's not about setting yourself on fire. He's not saying here we can save ourselves. He's not saying that this is easy. He's not saying we don't need grace. Surely there's a vital element of relating to God that is absolutely impossible. There's no offering. There's no thousands of rivers of oil, no sacrifice, nothing I can give up that will put me in relationship with God. And that's why God began his speech by stating to them that he's already done that part for them. He already acted to liberate them from slavery. He guided them to the land. He provided for their needs. He gave them a vision of a new humanity and allowed them to be in on the ground floor. God, indeed, finally even gave his firstborn for our sin. The one who eternally proceeds from the Father offered his own body for the sin of our souls. The extreme impossible offering has already been made. It's done. God himself in Christ has made it. So the message here is that God's requirement for his people is not some extreme of heroic devotion. God is not an infinite black hole of demand. However much he may finally ask of us. And so now we come to the money verse, verse 8. What does Yahweh seek from you but? And the question is, of course, the, the rhetorical form, but it could be translated more boringly. Yahweh actually seeks nothing from you except this. That is, it's a restrictive, it's a rhetorical question followed by a restrictive clause. Did I get that right, John? Thank you. Um, got to watch your grammar when you got an actual linguist sitting up here, you know, who, who knows these things. This is the summation of the whole case. Micah's reply to those who've objected to the answer that, that um, of these stubborn, cynical people that God asked too much. Micah says, no, he's told you. He wants three things from you. Do justice. Now, typically, we interpret justice by our Western even our American egalitarian concept of justice. They're good concepts. We think of justice as total uniformity of treatment for every single person, regardless of their background or their identity. When people can buy their way out of responsibility for their actions or when they're, or when they're punished unduly because they can't afford better lawyers, we say it's unjust. And of course, the second aspect of justice that we have uh, follows directly. Do something about it. See, that justice is done means make sure everybody gets their legitimate rights respected equally and everybody gets their legitimate responsibilities enforced. All the same, no exceptions, or somebody goes to jail or pays a fine. The cry for justice in our world often takes the form, I know my rights. Now, actually, all this is good. And in a, in a proper form, you can find a biblical grounding for a lot of these ideas. But it's maddeningly ironic that Micah's statement, do justice, has nothing to do with any of that. 
not a particle. Without burdening you with a lot of technical stuff, much as I would like to, I want to note an important Hebrew word here. Um, and that is the word we translate justice. The Hebrew word mishpat is built on the word shafat, which we normally translate judge. Wrong again. But actually, the term is not about judging in any way that we understand. It embraces this wide range of everything that circles around creating an ordered, wholesome, thriving community in which everybody finds their place, makes their contribution, uh, contributes to the flourishing of all. The standard lexicon of biblical Hebrew, the um, Kurler and Baumgartner, says this action is the restoration of shalom, of balance, stability, and order to the community. And so this noun used here, mishpat, will smell a little bit less like our idea of justice, and it may have some other smells in it that we want to take note of. Like, for example, mishpat in the Old Testament world was communal and deliberative. We've talked about the city gate. Cases would be heard on their merits. A judge might make a decision, but most of the time it wasn't a judge. It was the group at the gate. All the elders, they would hash it out. And why don't you try this? Why can't you do that? What's the problem here? And they would work out a solution. And many times the solution came from the past, from previous cases. Some old guy says, oh, I remember back in 42 how we, uh, we had a guy on the faculty used to be this way. We'd be debating stuff, you know what to do. And he would say, well, I remember. The old-timers here know who I'm talking about, just with the voice. In the uh, faculty meeting minutes of 1948, it was in the spring, we tried that, and it failed. And, <laughs> and you kind of go, okay. Um, <laughs> we refer to this faculty member as Mr. Excitement. Um, but, uh, but oftentimes the answer comes from the past. Somebody who remembers the history of the community, how these things have been addressed, um, and, uh, and, and how such conflicts were resolved. The community's got a memory, a tradition that sets a pattern for them. The word mishpat often means a pattern of life or a pattern of conduct or a rule of life. So to do mishpat likely here has something to do with calling on the Israelites to live their lives embedded in this community, living respectfully with its traditions, living in concert with its story, and reverberating and resonating its values. And often, in fact, to find the answer, the ancient peoples, and especially the Israelites, had to inquire of the deity. And whether they had to do that explicitly or not, all successful resolutions were felt to have come from Yahweh and to be Yahweh's will. Humans deliberated, humans debated, humans communicated, but ultimately in Israel, mishpat was seen as divine, as the gift of Yahweh, even a revelation of Yahweh. And that's why those Old Testament laws, the long list of example cases, you know, that drive us crazy, if a bird's nest falls on the ground, you know, those kind of things, somebody falls off your roof, uh, these sort of laws, those that we find in Exodus 22 and 23 and in, in the middle of Deuteronomy are called mishpatim. They are examples of this mishpat thing, this syllabus of understanding about how we solve our problems. Interestingly, none of these laws that I know of is ever actually cited in the Old Testament to resolve a dispute. Nobody says, well, back in Deuteronomy 1972, we have blah, 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 you know, like you cite cases in court. We don't find that in the Old Testament. What they are is a kind of formative repository of wisdom, of exemplars about how God's will takes shape in the community. 
So mishpat is divine, it's mediated by the community, it's often more suggestive than exhaustive, more exemplary than descriptive, but it's still God's revelation to the Old Testament people. It is still God's word, channeled through and expressed in human words. And it's no wonder then that this massive collection of Israel's mishpat finally comes to rest in written scripture. So for Micah to do justice doesn't mean stand up for causes. It means have a rule of life shaped by God's will as it's been revealed century after century to and through his servants. And extending those lines forward to us, that means to live under the authority of God's revelation channeled through his human servants, finally coming to expression in the text of Scripture. To do justice ultimately is live under the word and live out the word. And so we're a long way here from doing justice. Sorry about that. I have that effect sometimes. (laughs) We're a long way from the idea of doing justice as go out and fight for causes. But what happens when we internalize God's will as he's revealed it concretely, generation after generation, century after century in the pages of Scripture? You get a dose of that stuff in your blood, you will discover that you have a backbone. You will discover an inner warrior. You will discover a courage you didn't know you had. You'll find you want to stand up for people. You'll also find, though, that you're not doing it alone like some kind of hero or crusader. You're doing it standing with others. No heroics, no drama, just following God's will with God's people, doing what his word says. Do justice. Then there's love, mercy. Now, some translations have love, kindness. Uh, Others say love, mercy. And, of course, you guessed it. They're all wrong, (laughs) sort of. And, again, indulge me a moment in a Hebrew lesson. This one's easier. And a word here was featured yesterday in Dr. Arnold's uh, homily at the Eucharist, and I was desperately afraid he was going to, like, steal my thunder and do all this, and he didn't. It's like I dodged the bullet. So now you have to hear it from me instead of from somebody who could do a whole lot better job of it, probably. (laughs) This is probably the most famous word in the Hebrew Bible. It is the word hesed. Now, I'm not going to ask you to pronounce it with me. We always do that, and it's irritating, isn't it? So let's all say it together. Hesed. Hesed. Okay, we did it. And you know what's coming next. It's almost impossible to translate. That said, though, it's not hard to understand. Cruise over the 246, give or take, times that the word appears in the Old Testament, And just glean out the ones that are concrete and obvious and that appear in definite human context, and you'll see one thing over and over. If I have hesed, it means that I behave as if I'm responsible for the safety, health, wholeness, and happiness of the other people who come into my circle of care. It always implies a relationship. and Most often it's a relationship understood by kinship, or some kind of concrete commitment or alliance. It always has to do with taking on responsibility to care for others. Now, this again, the standard Hebrew dictionary, which I normally don't find very helpful, but actually here says something wonderful, that hesed is joint obligation between relatives, friends, host and guest, master and servant, closeness, solidarity, loyalty. So you can see why it's hard to translate. Because that is a cultural reality, not just the name of a thing. Hesed is something that you breathe 
and eat and sleep and you're not even aware of half the time. It's sort of what we do. You know that line, you know, hey, I'm your friend. It's what friends do. Or, you know, that commercial, you know, I don't for Geico, I think, it's what you do. Hesed, ideally, is something we don't think about. We just do it. We just are it. And so you can see then why kindness, one of the translation options, is probably okay, but also why it sort of misses the point. I think of kindness as niceness. Um, and, you know, not stepping on cats and stuff, you know. Um, and, and, you know, being nice. And we're really not talking here about being nice. Hesed affirms that you have power. In some interaction, you are in a position to protect, to provide, to care for another. And Hesed says not only can you, not only must you by some outside standard, but the reality is down inside of you, you say, I will care for this person. Not because it's the law, not because it's some abstract moral principle, but because of who I have become is I have done mishpat, I have now come to love hesed. I have been shaped, and you have been shaped, so that we naturally embrace a care for other people. The quintessential vision of hesed in ancient Israel was the rather unpopular figure of the male head of household. In Hebrew, the rosh beit av, the head of the father's house. We often note with alarm the enormous power that the male head of household possessed in ancient Israel, up to and including even in some cases capital punishment. But the most important thing to know about that male head of household is that while he did rule his household pretty much absolutely, he was expected and required to be beneficent and wise, to care for his family and clients and all who came under his care to take responsibility for their safetyness, their safety, their happiness, their protection. Their thriving was to be the passion of his life. That was hesed for that head of household. Which is why the Bible, which is what the Bible is really talking about when it calls God Father. It isn't about reproduction. It isn't about potency. It isn't ultimately even about something male. It is a well-known social role, the most important social role in the ancient world. As father, you see, God does something breathtaking. Now, theologians of a certain stripe like to stress the sovereignty of God. Often in doing so, they drive home the fact, legitimately, that God owes us nothing. God is utterly unforced, he's uncompelled, beyond the reach of all power, he's above all laws, he doesn't do it because it's right, it's right because he does it. And I suppose all that's true. But in the Bible, we are told that God, that God I just described, has decided to live and to act as if he is under obligation. The moment God called himself Father, God said, I am irrevocably committed to your safety, to your flourishing, to your thriving, to your life being all that it can be. And I will do whatever I have to do to ensure that all who are under my roof, under my protection, have what they need in their lives. 
by calling himself Father God in the Old Testament, says, I will act as one under obligation. I bind myself to my creation. I will commit myself to its wholeness, its health, its happiness, its thriving, and I will not walk away. That's who he is, people. He, and that's why the psalm that Dr. Arnold read, and all the, his steadfast love endures forever. The eternal God who knows no obligation, who can't be forced to do anything, says, I will force myself. I will commit to this creation. And I will see it through to the end. That's why you've got the book of Revelation, people. You start in a garden, and when you get to the end of Revelation, you see a city. And at first, I was disappointed by that. I thought, hey, city, I mean, we build cities. I don't like cities. But when you open the gate of that city and walk in, there's a garden. God says, I never quit. I never gave up, and I don't do that. You're in my family, my household. I stay with you. So uh, what does it mean if we love Hesed? Well, it means we devote ourselves to the thriving and flourishing and godly happiness of those who are around us. It means when we hear Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper? We answer, absolutely. Next question. We do this intuitively, instinctually. What about walk humbly with your God? Finally, something we understand, right? Inner personal piety, me and Jesus devotions, this little light of mine. Not quite. First of all, I'm here to declare that the word we translate humbly, we have no idea what it means. And in an uncharacteristic moment, I'm not going to say anything about it. Because I want to say a little bit about walk. And uh, the word walk here is important because in the Old Testament, walk is an ethical term. It is the primary ethical term in the Old Testament, as a matter of fact. Even today, when the Jews are talking about ethics, they call it halakha, which is a, a word based on the word walk, halach. And look in the New Testament, how often it says to Christians, walk this way, walk that way. That's the Jewish operative term for ethical living. And in using this word, the Old Testament picks up something from the surrounding ancient culture. And, and this exists in all the ancient cultures, but I'm going to use Mesopotamia. Uh, whenever a king or a prince would give something, like a piece of land or some wealth or power, privilege, whatever, to somebody in his uh, service, that always came with a role attached. And I've used the word role, not condition, uh, not obligation, but a role. If you're going to farm land granted you by the king, then you will fulfill a role in the king's service. It might be a share of the crops, it might be military service, but in some way you are the king's man. That power, that privilege, that position, that property, uh, that came with a role attached. Now, here's the fun thing. The Akkadian term for that role, for that obligation, if you want to call it that, that role is the word ilku, which the etymologically clever among us immediately realizes is cognate with the Hebrew word meaning to walk. And what's really cool is that the Akkadian idiom to fulfill your role, to live out that role connected with your property and privilege is the term alaku ilka, which means to walk the walk. Have you ever used that expression? You got to walk the walk if you're going to talk the talk. You're using an Akkadian political sociological idiom. You're smarter than you thought you were, aren't you? you say, excuse me, that's just an Akkadian idiom I like to use every once in a while. Learn that as seminary. 
So when the Old Testament speaks of walking with God, it's not so much talking about private inner piety, though certainly the inner life is a part of it. It is talking about with our whole being, stepping into the role that comes attached to the privilege and the gifts that God has given us. He's not saying, look what I did for you, now what are you going to do for me? It's not like blackmail. It's more like, I've given you this wonderful gift. Now there's a role that I want you to play in my world. Walk humbly with your God basically means live on mission. You're the king's man. You're the king's woman. You no longer have a private life. Your your world, your life is not your own. You have a role to play. You have a charge to keep. You have a walk to walk. Just one more thing. You know the real surprise for me in all this? I like to think that I can anticipate after all these many years what the biblical writers are going to say. This is bad. This is wrong. It's a mistake. (laughs) The real surprise in verse 8 for me is something that I missed for as many years as I've read the Bible until I was preparing this message. In this legal context, this lawsuit going on, I expect legal terminology. He has shown you, O Adam, that's the word that's used, Adam, what is holy. He has shown you what is just. He has shown you what is righteous. And he says he has shown you, Adam, what is good. Now, good in Hebrew is just the word tov. What a strange word to use. This is the most plastic, most malleable, most flexible, least defined term in the entire Hebrew language that I know of. Basically, it means whatever makes you happy. <laughs> you know, you look at something, you go, tov, you know, big pile of bacon, you know, a bacon, bacon, and bacon sandwich, tov, you know, tov ma'od, you know, that's really good. If you're an evil person, sin is tov, you know, it's tov in your eyes to do, to do wickedness. It's totally subjective, it's just whatever you like. And it harks back to the creation, too. God, you know, about seven times in the creation story says, ooh, that's good. You know, and it's almost like God says, I didn't realize I was this good, you know. Uh, This is amazing. You know, let's make something else, you know, because the Sabbath's coming. We're going to have to quit, so we better get to work. And uh, so he gets all his stuff done. He keeps saying, that's good, that's good. Then he made human beings, made them as sexual creatures, and he said, that is very good, you know. So um, so it's just a very uh, amazing word. Uh, If you're a sinner, evil's good because that makes you happy. It just means you like what you see. Good. And Micah tells us that God's requirement is good. About six or seven years ago, I bought my very first grown-up male suit. I'm wearing it today. How did I get to be 55 years old and not own a suit? And I was figuring out, where do you buy a suit? I mean, I didn't know. So I'm watching television. This ad comes on, and it's for Men's Warehouse, okay? And you remember a few years ago this ad, this, this guy, uh, an oldish sort of guy, which made me feel good, um, with this salt-and-pepper beard and a really awesome suit, says in this gravelly voice, you're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. Embrace God's will for your life, founded on the grace that he's already set you free, already paid the price, already made the big sacrifice. Express that in free devotion, 
live it out in an ordered life under his word, embedded in the community. Step joyfully into the role God gives you. Put your arms around the people who are under your care, not because you've got to, but because you get to. Yeah, it'll be righteous. It'll be holy. It'll also just be plain awesome. But most importantly, it'll be good. You're going to like the way you look. He guarantees it.